Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. It feels like summer is here. I'm here in my office, 80 and 90 degrees. The Detroit Tigers had a no-hitter last night. So as I was getting dressed this morning, I thought we would celebrate that. I'm excited to be with everybody today. If you think about learning modern dance, poetry, and painting, you probably envision a studio of some sort on a beautiful college campus filled with creative people working on the fine arts that make this world a better place. But that's not the only place you will find people learning to enrich their own lives with fine art. Our next guest on Open Mic is a teacher of such things, but her students are not at a university. They are behind bars. Susan Slotnick teaches inmates who have been accused of all kinds of crimes how to look at life a little differently. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to have you here. I, I read your story. I've, I've looked you up on Facebook, but I want to start with your background and your childhood and how it prepared you for what you're doing today. I grew up in Westchester, New York, in Scarsdale, which was uh, supposedly a very upper middle class community filled with privileged young people, but my mother, unfortunately, was mentally ill, and my father was an autistic savant. Mm. He had a record store called Merit Music Shop, and when if he saw a record once, he was able to memorize the number. So he, he memorized a quarter of a million record catalog numbers. So it was a very strange upbringing, one very emotional person, very narcissistic, very difficult, very abusive, and one person who really couldn't understand human relationships. Wow. So that was my cradle. And I did very poorly in school, had a lot of problems. I was a card-carrying juvenile delinquent by the time I was, I guess, 13. In those days, they actually gave you a card if you got into trouble with the police. And I had... I flunked out of high school. I had one obstacle after another. But during that time, for whatever reason, serendipity, luck, I was also memorizing Victorian poetry. I was also reading dozens and dozens of books about history and watching classic films and had this real sense that I believed it, something good was going to happen for me and that I would be able to overcome these obstacles. So that's kind of the, the background. It's interesting because working in prisons, obviously this is where you know, your, your soft spot came for people who have had some trouble in their lives. I think so. And also, when you go into a prison, you have the opportunity 
to overcome your own stereotypes, uh, the way you view other people. You usually wind up getting way more than you give. You become humbled by the brilliance and the talent and the hope of the people inside. And instead of going in there where you may start when you do volunteer work with a marginalized group of people, you may start with the idea that you're helping them, that in some ways they're less than due to their circumstances. It was a real learning experience for me to learn in many ways more from them than they might have learned from me. And, and how many years now have you been working in the prisons? I started about 20 years ago working in a boys' prison, boys between the ages of, I guess, 12 and 18. Mm. And I was there for five years intensively. We put on several full-length concerts that their families were allowed to attend. And their circumstances were quite unusual because many of them were sex offenders which was very murky because there were 16-year-old boys who were dancing in the subway and who had some kind of an altercation with a 14-year-old girl. But due to the circumstances of their so-called crimes, they went to prison for long periods of time. I, I don't believe in incarcerating young people. Unless, of course, we have to keep them away from societies for the safety of society. And I do think there's a small segment, but I don't think that incarcerating young people prepares them for life. And they loved the dancing. So it worked out very well. So it doesn't sound like you ever scared for your safety going into these uh, prisons. No. Well, actually, that's not true. I was never scared in the boys' prison. I was never scared of the men that I was teaching in the adult prison. But in the prison, there was a corridor. And there are people in prison who need to be there. And there are people in prison who cannot come out because they are a danger to themselves in society. But and on, in this corridor, there was a bathroom that the volunteers were allowed to use. And I do remember being afraid once when I went into that bathroom, hundreds of men started that I didn't know started to come down that hallway. And there was no way of escaping that little room. There were no windows or anything. And the only thought I ever remember having a fear was, what if some mentally ill prisoner walks into that bathroom when I'm there and locks the door? Aside from that, in 20 years, I have just given you my one and only moment of fear. Great. I've never gotten that question before, by the way. <laughs> hey, you know, that's what we do here on Open Mic. Uh, we we ask so. uh, original questions. <laughs> that so, was very original. So what made you, I mean, seek this out or learn about prisons or go into prisons to teach the arts? The reason I'm pausing is because I always tell the same story at this point, but I realize that there's more to the story. I do not remember a time in my life when I didn't have a huge wish to help people. I remember being in Scarsdale and looking at the garbage men picking up our garbage and wanting to invite them into our home for dinner that night. I always had this wish. I cannot identify where it came from. I sometimes think these things are born into us. But in terms of dance with incarcerated people specifically, I, I had a date rape situation when I was 18, which resulted in my first sexual experience. 
And I couldn't tell anybody about it. I, of course, it was very a long time ago. So I blamed myself, which is what women did in those days. And when I came home that night, in order to overcome the trauma of what had just happened to me, I put on music and I danced all night after my parents went to bed. And I even remember the song I danced to. You're too young to remember this song. It's the Drifters with some kind of wonderful. Mm. And in the next morning... I felt like I had overcome this experience. Of course, it was years later that I found out that dance, moving beautifully and tenderly to gorgeous music, changes your brain chemistry. This is now a scientific fact in exactly the same ways that antidepressants do. So evolutionary biologists have discovered this. I discovered that that night. So I thought, where do people need that healing that I experienced? Where can I get people who aren't free or who, who are traumatized? Because most people in prison are victims as well as perpetrators. Most people who not do, do harm in the world, even in small interpersonal ways, are coming from their own pain. People in pain cause pain. So it occurred to me that that I just wanted to bring movement to people who I felt were locked up, traumatized, sad, and had been victimized and behaved badly as a result of it. That was my mindset. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful uh, reason. Did are you are you formally trained in dance? Well, that's another interesting story. <laughs> interesting question. I've never gotten. I oh had, my goodness! You're good, Mike. <laughs> I had I had the best dance teacher conceivably on this planet, Madame Yuskevich, the great Russian ballet teacher, Igor Yuskevich's wife at the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo on West 54th Street in New York City when I was 11 years old. But because I too was not okay, I was definitely at risk uh, emotionally, mentally from my own background. I didn't know how to work hard. So every time the teacher turned around, I would stop doing whatever I was doing at the bar. So, and then at about 14, I quit because I became totally enmeshed in boys and socializing. Then when I got older, after I had my first child, I wanted to go, I started to go to dance class with a very well-known teacher named Brenda Buffalina who lived in my hometown. And I was taking all these dance classes, but I was way too old to become a dancer and to have a dance career. And then one thing happened after another. I had children and I started a little dance group for my children. And the group snowballed into 150 students. And I patterned myself off Jack Dumbois, who basically taught movement that anybody could do and the kids could keep their shoes on. And at one point I saw I had extremely gifted students and they could become professional dancers and I was not trained to give them what they needed. So I went to my best students and I said, you have to leave my school, you have to find a real dance teacher who can train you for a professional career. And this one student looked at me and said, how about you go to school and learn how to be a good dance <laughs> teacher? And I did. Wow. So I went into New York City to a place called the Clark Center for Performing Arts and to the Alvin Ailey School. And for about 10 years, I trained myself in the Lester Horton technique, which is the technique that was originally popularized by the Alvin Ailey Company. And I became someone who could train professional dancers. And I have had students that became professional dancers. So I was trained in the service of them 
And I never myself performed. I only performed once in my whole life. Wow, that's interesting. I performed for my best friend who was a Catholic priest at that time for his 25-year jubilee. I performed in a Catholic church on a marble floor. Floor, okay. not floor. <laughs> there were plenty of flaws. Your New York, your New York floor. accents coming out. You listen, if you're born in <laughs> Brooklyn, it doesn't matter if you left when you were two years old. If you became verbal in Brooklyn, you're doomed to have a New York <laughs> accent for the rest of your life. My daughter's moving to Brooklyn on Monday. So there you go. Um, so, so let, like, so let's hear some of, you know, success stories, interesting stories about teaching these men, uh, dance. I mean, I've never heard of this. I'm going to encourage everybody to go to your Facebook and look at some of these videos and check out some of your awards that you've won. Um, but, but tell me some, tell me some success stories or some, anything. I want to tell, tell you me. an amazing story. And it's in my book. I wrote a book about this, uh, called flight, the dance of freedom. This is a story from my book. There was a gentleman who joined my dance class. His name was David Navarro. He was not born in this country and he did not really go to school. And when I found him as a student in the Woodburn Correctional Center, he told me that when he came to prison, he was illiterate. He learned how to read and write. He became the um, prison sign language person to sign for all the prisoners who had some hearing issues. And he loved this one piece that I did. And it was based on Alvin Ailey's revelations on the first movement, the I've been buked movement, which is about people who are not considered to be equal to other people. And it, I redid the movement for their ability. Anyway, at one point, I got a letter from his longtime girlfriend who had stood by him for the whole 30 years that he was in prison, that he had stage four stomach cancer and had a very short period of time to live. And according to her, and of course I can't know this for sure, he got it because the water was bad in a prison that he was in. Many of the prisoners became symptomatic. They were treated. He never got symptoms. So he had a virus in his digestive tract that went on for years and eventually caused the cancer. I used to know the name of it, but I don't remember it right at this exact moment. And he decided to apply for a compassionate release because he was going to die. And they turned him down, even after a perfect record of 30 years in prison. So at one point, I had gone against the rules, and somebody had come in to do a documentary about the prison dance program, and they had the capacity to take a video, although we had no permission to take a video, only still pictures. But I was a hippie in the 60s, and I'm a, kind of an iconoclast, so I strong-armed this woman into making a video, which was just for me to remember for the rest of my life the incredible beauty of these men doing Alvin Ailey's revelations. And she sent me the video. So when David got turned down for compassionate release, I sent the video to three lawyers. And they never got back to me with a letter. Please, if you could take this man's case, it would mean so much. There's no way that he can come up with the money. You know, his girlfriend had told me how much it was going to cost. There's no way he can hire a lawyer to pursue this compassionate release. Well, they never got back to me, but the next day they went to the prison and took his case. 
all three of them went to see him. And they took his case. This always, I'm going to, you know, get a little teary here because he got out as a result of dancing Alvin Ailey's revelations. Holy mo- Oh my God. He got out of prison because of the dance program and the hair is now standing up on my arm because mm-hmm. I tell this story and the day he got out, his girlfriend went to pick him up. And I remember I knew he was getting out that morning. The phone rang and I could hear traffic in the background and it was David calling me and he was free for the first time. Well, things didn't go well for him. Of course, he was dying. And about two weeks later, Tina, his girlfriend, called me and said to me, he really wants to see you. And if you come, he'll be over the moon to see you. Now, I am going to be 76 years old in November. And driving on those highways down to Long Island to the hospice, which he was in, was harrowing for me. I white knuckled it all the way down. People were changing lanes like crazy. And I got to the hospice and I was with him. 48 hours before he died. And that was, I suppose, out of all the stories and many stories, and most of them in my book, that was really extraordinary because who could have thought in their wildest dreams that a three-minute dance in a prison was going to get somebody released so they could get their greatest wish? Many of these men, most of them, their greatest fear is to die in prison. So the dance program gave him his greatest wish to die in the arms of the woman who had stood by him for 30 years and because of the art form that he had grown to love. And this video is on, I think it might be on my um, website, susanslotnick.com. I know for sure the dance is on the website. I'm not sure if it's him doing it, but I know that it's on the website. So that story gave me chills. That was, oh, oh, wow. What a beautiful story. I still feel it in my, in my neck. That is, I mean, that probably makes the 20 years all worth it right then and there. You know, you get to a point in life, Mike, where every good and bad moment that ever happened to you in your life. And when you get to be having lived a three, three fourths of a century, you get grateful for every bad and good moment because every bad and good moment has led to this exact moment where we're talking to each other about this and hopefully inspiring people to volunteer and to try to look for places where they can bring the light of their own talent and the wisdom of their own pain into places where they can be utilized. So beautiful. So, I want to change gears just for a second on that. Um, you know, tell me, I mean, are prisoners generally receptive to wanting to dance? Are they good dancers? Are they, does it matter? Um, you know, is it, is there, I mean, are they, are they lined up to get in? Is it hard to get dancers? I just have all these questions going through my head. But just give me well, a flavor. In, in the boys prison, they were lined up to get in. The boys used to say to the rec director, I'll, I'll wash the, um, the gym floor with a toothbrush to get into the dance program. But part of that was because I brought three young women with me. And some of them were incarcerated from the time they were 12 to 18, and they didn't see any women their own age. So that was a huge motivational 
fact. And then when they actually saw the dancing and saw the show and the other young men saw it, then it didn't matter about the girls. Even if the girls didn't come, they were keen. But that was a, a good hook for, for boys that age who were living in very difficult circumstances. And I do want to say there was a beautiful lake right next to the boys' prison. And on the other side of the lake was a boys' camp. And in the five years I was there, those boys never even put a finger into that lake. But from their little bit of window that they had, they could see these free boys boating and having a good time. And that used to break my heart. Hmm. The men's prison was a different situation. I was being sponsored by an organization called Rehabilitation Through the Arts. And so the before I came in to do dance, they had all been doing theater. Now, there were 800 men in that facility, and I only had at most 20 in class. Of course, what people don't understand is that 97 to 98% of all prisoners are getting out, which is why we have to care more about the programming in prison. So I was working with people that were on their way out, that were 98% rehabilitated, through their own wish, through their own desire, through having availed themselves of every possible program. So if you can imagine working with the best, most ready people of the 800, there was tremendous willingness to try the dance program. And they loved it. And they were gifted beyond belief, both in the boys' prison and in the men's prison, the grace and the beauty was amazing. And I think when you see big muscular men and boys visually doing this very powerful movement, which the Horton technique is, very ballistic movement, but doing it with such grace and emotion, it was visually the most extraordinary dance I've seen. And I had four professional companies, youth companies outside, and I had never seen even among these very gifted kids on the outside, anything like what I saw there, because the circumstance of being in prison for a certain segment of the men makes them, it's almost like a monastery. It makes them want to avail themselves of every conceivable possibility to have a better life inside. So they were very keen. And I think part of their talent was due to the fact that the impoverishment of being in prison juxtaposed against the freedom and the beauty of the music was something they craved more than people who have on the outside. I'm taking Monday, I'm taking guitar and Tuesday I go to swim and I'm getting into this college. You know, I worked with very gifted kids on the outside, but they didn't have that desperation to feel something magnificent mm. that the incarcerated population did. Does that answer your question? Yeah. No, it does. It does. Okay. Did, did, how did the other prisoners react to it? Did you, were you able to, I know you mentioned you were able once in a while to give a performance, but were, were, were you regularly able to uh, showcase the dancers in front of the other prisoners and how did the other yes. prisoners react? Well, the other prisoners reacted and I'll only tell you one brief story about that. We gave the performances in a gymnasium and the prisoners were in the bleachers. And I would say, 
one of the things that was shocking to my very good friend who happens to be happened to be the deputy of programming at this facility when I was there she said that even on a night when the football field the the baseball field had opened and they had finally had a movie she said she couldn't believe that two or three hundred men would choose to come to the performance so they'd be in the bleachers and they're a great audience very vocal and they liked something they really appreciated it but I got a letter from an audience member given to me, also against the rules, given to me by one of the men in my program that said that watching it changed his life. And he detailed the movement that affected him, the music that affected him, a man that he knew that he couldn't believe was up there doing that, that made him believe that he could do things he never thought he could do. And it was just an amazing letter from an audience member. That's fabulous. Wow. It was fabulous. Yeah. I mean, that gives you a warm and fuzzies that, I mean, you're changing, changing lives, not only the dancers lives, but the, the people who get to watch them. Um, and, and but I still- have to take it. I have to take issue with something that people has always said to me with all, um, respect to you. I didn't change anybody's life. I gave them a tool to change their own life. And when I could see it like that, I wasn't going to go there as a wisdom figure or, a, or a mother figure, which they used to tell me, they used to call me their guru. And I'd say, I'm nobody's guru. Because if, and they would say, you changed my life. And I'd say, if I could change people's lives, there wouldn't be 15 people in this room. There'd be 800. So what blew my mind was that I had these tools and the metaphor that I used to tell them when they would put me on a pedestal, because I'm actually very ordinary in my own life, was if, if I give you tools to build a house, and they're the best tools in the world and the most expensive and they're shiny and they're new and they're beautiful. And I'm an inspiring teacher to tell you how to use them. And you go out and build a house. Who built the house? Ultimately, you did. So the, uh, the privilege of watching them use dance to transform themselves was really humbling for me. I, listen, I hear you, your humility, and I, I hear that you are a facilitator with these tools and, and going into the prison, but you, we know how rare this is, and we know how rare people like you are who take the time to do this. And so whether you want the, uh, you want the kudos or not, you're going to get some. Um, as long as is- they don't change my, me. Yeah, well, You know, I love it. Everybody loves a compliment. I loved having the movies made. I like hearing from the guys. But it's always important to remember that no one does anything alone. Because given a different population to work with, my tools would have been rusty. It wouldn't have worked everywhere because I'm so wonderful. It was the perfect confluence of energies for me to be my best self as a teacher. That's great. I see that you, you know, your Facebook page, uh, it looks like you, you update it regularly. I think it's amazing to see these men who've made these serious mistakes, uh, in life dancing with, with such passion. Uh, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from strangers or your Facebook friends, uh, uh, about what you post? 
Well, you know, 99% of the feedback has been wonderful, but every now and then someone will say something really hurtful. For example, a few times people have made the comment, oh, sure, you could get them to dance. They're a captive audience. But they volunteered for the program. Mm -hmm. So the assumption that they'll do anything because they have no power, no choice, no autonomy was ignorant. Mm -hmm. And I have gotten that response. But overwhelmingly, the response has been shocking. I can't believe what I'm seeing. And actually, since then, there's been a little bit more dance in prison than when I started. Hmm. So I think this is a an idea whose time has come. Well, I've heard of people, obviously the people go in and volunteer. I, I, my actually, my ex-wife used to teach creative writing, uh, back in her college days. Um, and, and there are definitely people who do that. Is your, um, is your, is your program run on donations? Is it, does it need financing? Can people help if they're inspired by this story? The short answer is no. Uh, first of all, I never got paid until the very end when the Umbrella Organization got a grant and was able to give a small stipend, which, by the way, changed my relationship to what I was doing. So I actually did not like getting paid. It became a side agenda that had a little bit of an effect. So money is not needed. <coughs> Excuse me, allergies. In terms of helping, I am making the offer to anyone who hears this who is interested in doing dance in prison and would like some advice on how to get started. I'd be happy to talk to them if they get in touch with me. But I really don't have any need. I mean, I think that I think the book has a lot to say. People have gotten reviewed it online in ways that were very amazing. It is a blueprint for overcoming childhood adversity and trauma and trying to direct that to make the world a better place. So certainly I would love people to read my book. I took the trouble to write it. I think it would inspire people to do this kind of work, but also it'll inspire people who had difficult upbringings to understand that you have two choices in life. You can cause pain because you're in pain or you can have your heart break at a young age and therefore the contents spill out and you want to love the world as a result of the heartbreak you experienced as a kid. So I think I could be of use by people becoming inspired by what I do, I guess. I love it. I love it. I love it. We're going to put uh, a link to your book and your Facebook and, uh, other stuff in our show notes. And uh, Susan, I really appreciate you coming on open mic today. I loved your story. I loved hearing everything about it. And uh, I hope our listeners and viewers do as well. So thanks and again. Thank you very much for having me. And that's about it. <laughs> All right. Nice, nice of you to have me on your show. I thanks. appreciate it.
All right. An interesting episode. You know, we do a lot of episodes about people wrongfully convicted and people who are in prison. We don't really dive into what they're doing. And there's beautiful people like Susan Slotnick teaching dance, teaching the arts to prisoners, some who don't deserve to be there, some who are innocent, some who are there for too long. Um, Really inspiring. I wish this could be uh, a program duplicated in every prison out there just to make these people's lives a little bit better uh, while they're going through what they're going through. So if you enjoyed this episode, please comment, please like, please share it with somebody you think might need to hear it today. And thanks for being with us as always on Open Mic, and we'll see you next time.